We're going through the book of Mark, so turn to Mark chapter 2, and we're going to jump right in. Mark chapter 2, verses 1 through 12, and then we'll pray and, and we'll get after it. This is Mark 2, 1 through 12. And when he returned to Capernaum after some days, it was reported that he was at home. And many were gathered together so that there was no room, not even at the door. And he was preaching the word to them. And they came, bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. And when they could not get near because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And when they had, when they had made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now, some of the scribes were sitting there, questioning in their hearts, why does this man speak like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And immediately, Jesus perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves, he said to them, why do you question these things in your hearts? Which is easier to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise, rise up, take up your bed and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And he rose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them, before them all. So they all were amazed and glorified God, saying, we've never seen anything like this. Let's pray. Lord, I am so grateful for this snapshot into your life here. Um, fascinating view of you. Would you give us eyes to see, ears to hear what's going on in this story? Ears to hear your voice in this story. Ears to be surprised in this story. Let us, um, may our own hearts be surprised. I pray that you guide us through this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, we've been going through the book of Mark on Sunday mornings um, in order to study Jesus. And I want it. We've been using the term study not in the sense of mastering a body of material the way a student would, would, would master a subject at school, but um, in, another, in an ancient way, in a, in a, well, you could say in a Jesuit kind of a way. Um, Ignatius Loyola had this idea of imaginative Bible study and imaginative prayer where you would, put your, you would use your imagination. He believed that God gave you an imagination to use it for his glory and that you would with your mind's eye, put yourself in the story, that you would imagine yourself being there, that you would hear the same, that you would hear, you know, he would even say, do you hear the birds? What do the smells smell like? He tried to get you to be in the scene as much as you can. And Mark really, um, really lends well to that kind of philosophy when we're talking about Jesus. We want to, this morning and throughout this study, we want to watch Jesus. We want to pretend that we're there watching him. And I want to kind of guide you through that. And today's super, it's actually a really fun story because of all the surprising things about Jesus. In the text, people are surprised. In fact, I think I'll call this sermon surprise or surprised or something about being surprised because it's all over the text. It's more of a feel. People are shocked. And I think for those of us that know this story I'll say this too well, we breeze right over it because we're used to it. We've heard it so many times. We've seen it. We watched a movie about it or whatever it might be. But one of the main literary features here is the shock of it, the surprise. Several of the, uh, the people are surprised. In fact, if you can read this with fresh eyes this morning, I think you'll find a reaction in yourself that is also surprising. One of the greatest tools to study the Bible is to also pay very close attention to what's going on inside of you. Most of the time, that is very intentional. It was written that way. So, for example, when you feel unwelcomed feelings of doubt, maybe contradiction, which we'll get into here. Uh, contradiction between what we know about Jesus to what it's saying about Jesus. And we don't like uncomfortable feelings in our culture. We tend to just kind of stuff that and move forward and cling on to the things we like. The Bible would say, or I would, tell, I would suggest, lean into those things and you'll learn something new. Most of the time, those things are there on purpose. 
and they lead you to, um, to something. It's called the fallen condition focus. If you're looking for a hermeneutical term for this, uh, a hermeneutical tool is called the fallen condition focus. And the, the basic principle is if you're feeling something inside of your humanity, chances are the humans in the room back then were feeling something similar. We have things in common with these people that transcend culture and time and those types of things. And those things we can learn and we can cling on to. So with that in mind, um, today, in fact, I, I, I think this is a good way to divide up the book. We're going to look at the surprises. Um, those, that sought, those that sought the healing were surprised by the wisdom of Jesus' priority. That's the first thing we're going to look at. Those that were seeking the, the healing were surprised, had to have been surprised, had to have been at the, the, the wisdom of Jesus' priority. Secondly, we're going to look at um, the paralytic had to be surprised at, at the eagerness of Jesus' mercy. I think that's probably where most of us will be surprised. The eagerness of Jesus' mercy. And thirdly, the scribes were surprised by the authority of Jesus. And it's really fun because Jesus answers them with like a riddle. You know, he says something that's really like, riddle me this. Let me ask you a question. And it's a fun one. So, first, let's notice the wisdom of Jesus' priority. This is, well, let's look at verses 1 through 5 to get that one. And when Jesus returned to Capernaum, which was basically his HQ up in the region of Galilee, he did most of his ministry out of this little coastal city on the lake of, of um, oh gosh, the, lake of Gal- the Sea of Galilee. Um, so that's where he's at. It's reported that he had come home. In other words, come to where he normally is. And many were gathered together so that there was no more room, not even at the door. So this huge crowd begins to amass where he is. He's teaching the word of God. He's preaching the word to them. And they came, bringing to him a paralytic, someone who's paralyzed, carried by four men. And when they could not get near to him because of the crowd, you can just, again, use your imagination to picture this in your mind. They can't get in because the crowd is so thick. They let down the bed, or excuse me, um, they removed the roof. I wonder how the homeowner felt, felt about this. They removed the roof above him, and when they made an opening, so they broke the roof apart. They had made an opening in the roof. Uh, houses back then had stairs that were at the ground level, but on the outside of the house that you could walk up to the roof of the house. And, and when the day would cool off, it, wasn't, it, was, it was a common practice that families would go up on top of the roof um, in the cool of the day and enjoy the, the cool um, evening, eat some food as a family. So rooftops were also used as kind of a porch area or an, an, an outer area to gather with your family. Well, they go up there and they start, they start, I don't know how, the text doesn't exactly tell us, but they begin to, to break the material apart that's forming this roof where Jesus is down below. And they let down the bed where the paralytic lay. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, son, your sins are forgiven. Uh, two things about this point that we need to, as, again, we're trying to study, learn, Watch Jesus. We're watching Jesus at this point. And one thing that we learn about him, what causes him to act? What's, what causes him to bring action and to meet their bid for connection and their bid for approval? And that is in chapter, verse 5. It says, when Jesus saw their faith. In other words, that is the trigger point that made Jesus move. So one thing that we can learn about Jesus, if we're, we want to learn him we can know that he's all about faith. He loves faith. And this is a main theme, not just in the book of Mark, but, in, but through the Gospels. They keep pointing this out. Jesus is very impressed by, on a hunt for, searching for, and bringing out people's faith. Drawing it out of people. It's one of his main things. He loves it. One thing we can know about Jesus, he loves faith. And it was their faith in this story that acted that activates Jesus. And we'll see this attraction over and over again. Faith basically means in this context, in the context of the Gospels, when someone comes and depends on Jesus. When someone comes and says, I can't do it, but I think you can. That simple act, I can't do it, but I think you can. Usually, uh, this really comes out in the face of major limitations. When someone's at the end of their rope, when they've, they're all out of other options, 
There's nothing else they can do, because that's typically how long it takes stubborn people like me to get the point. Then they come and they, they say, okay, I've got no other choice but to leap this leap of faith and trust you and depend on you. And it thrills the heart of Jesus. It, thrill, it, it thrills the heart of God. Hebrews says it is impossible to please God at all without faith. Faith, again, it doesn't mean a, 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 it doesn't just mean a belief in something to where there's little evidence. It's talking about a dependence. It, in fact, it, the, liter, the, literary, or the uh, literal translation is to lean your weight on the object of your faith. You're putting your faith in your chairs right now. You believe they're going to hold your weight. You believe they're going to hold you. You're, you're depending on them in a sense. And when it's a relational aspect, it's a lot more intimate. It means I'm depending on you to be, and you know, fathers, husbands know this. When, when a little child depends on you for their safety, for their love, for something, it just thrills our heart when a, when a kid trusts us to that depth. There's something super intimate about, you know, you're never going to get from anybody else. When a child allows you to fix something that they would never allow anybody else to see. We get those precious moments as, as parents. Um, you know, Noble was telling me the other day when he was being babysat, uh, he said, this thing happened, I won't tell you the details because that would embarrass him, but he said, this thing happened where they had to help me and you weren't there and I was, he got so red just recalling it, he said, I was so embarrassed. <laughs> and I thought to myself, how precious it is that he wanted it to be me thought, man, I wish my dad was here because I'm safe with my dad. There's something that's so beautiful, and I would say the glue of every relationship is the level of trust that's between you and that person. And there's different levels to that. And there are certain people that we have come to learn are absolutely, absolutely safe. And so one thing we can know about Jesus, he's thrilled when we figure out that he is the safest being in the universe. That we can come before him and we can trust him. These people, keep in mind, they may, they're not necessarily believers in his divinity. They don't know exactly what his redemption plan is. They don't know a lot about Jesus, but they're, they've decided to trust him with the well-being of their friend to the point where this makes them fight through the crowds up the stairs of someone else's house and without that person's permission, tear apart that roof and then even uh, risk future injury or further injury by lowering the person down. He could have fallen. All sorts of, there's risks all over this, this story. And yet that was the level of their trust. If we can just get him to this Jesus, we know he can do this. And it thrills the Lord. That's one thing we can learn about, the, about Jesus in our own lives. The more we know that he is the safest being in our lives, that we can depend on him for everything, the, the more thrilling it is. Another, uh, when Noble gets old enough, I'm gonna have to stop telling stories about him because he'll be sitting in here and it'll embarrass him. But when he was sick, uh, he was throwing up. He'd never thrown up before. He didn't really know, can you imagine not ever feeling that before? And out of his little heart, as he's doing this in the toilet, he goes, he throws up and he goes, Jesus, help me. And I just, it was so beautiful. It was so sweet that out of his soul, when it's pressed, he would cry out to the Lord. And I think how thrilled the Lord is with that. He trusts me. He trusts me. Um, but here's the thing. Here's the, here's, what, here's the surprising part of the story. The part that had to have shocked them, maybe even irritated the, the, peop, the four guys that were trying to seek um, the healing here, was after all their efforts, Jesus walks over to this guy and does not say, rise, take up your bed and walk. He walks over to the guy instead and says, son, your sins are forgiven. That would have been, it, with the context, that would have been shocking because obviously they're not there for forgiveness. Obviously, they're there for other, what they would think to be more pressing reasons. As great as forgiveness might be, they might say, can you, obviously, 
We thought this would be self-explanatory to you, Jesus, as what this guy is looking for. And to their shock, Jesus says something else. He says, oh, your sins are, for, your sins are forgiven. Now, use your imaginations, and you can feel the awkward surprise in the room after all of this. And this huge crowd is there. Everyone's probably assuming that Jesus is going to say, bam, be healed. I'm moved by your faith. Get up and walk. But it doesn't happen. But for Jesus, here's one thing that we can learn about him. Again, as we're watching him, he shows a different kind of priority. This, for Jesus, this might not have been their objective. This might not have been their priority, forgiveness. But for Jesus, this is first priority. Here is something very important to observe about Jesus this morning, and that is for him, there is nothing more important than a right relationship with God. Nothing. There's nothing more important. This is first and foremost in Jesus' mind. Again, think of it. You're learning this person, Jesus, and this this very sick person is lowered to him, and the, you're wondering, how, oops, sorry, how is Jesus processing these things? The first thing he thinks about is the well-being of this person's soul, his relationship with God, not his physical well-being. When Jesus, and I think this is something we can learn, when Jesus looks at the world and when Jesus looks at you, when Jesus looks at the world and sees all the disease all the abuse, the corruption, the physical ailments, the war, and so on. He looks at all of those things. He sees all of those things. He's not blind to all of those things, but he attributes all of the broken relationship, all of the, the brokenness in this world to a broken relationship between God and humankind. That, this shows us how Jesus sees the world, how he looks at brokenness. The real problem, you could say, Jesus would say, is in the soul, in the heart. Now, physical health and material prosperity, these are great things. They're good, but nothing is more important than having a right, right relationship with God. Nothing is more important than being recon reconciled to God. Nothing. And here, to the surprise of everyone there, Jesus shows that this is, his, this, is the, this is what's making his heart beat. He came to restore the broken relationship between man and God. This is why he came. And um, this is the answer to the world's woes. This is, so if we're looking at the world through the, the eyes of Jesus, he would say the answer is not throwing more money or education at the world's problems as helpful as those things actually are. Those things are great, but all the money and education in the world can, can only do so much. It can only go so far. We should, listen, we should be doing those things. Sure, we should be doing what we can, but we need to also understand that there's something greater. I don't want to jump to an extreme. We're not talking about one or the other, because notice it's, this passage is about Jesus' priority. Jesus does eventually heal the guy, doesn't he? Right? Jesus does heal the guy. So, here's my point. Neither the Bible nor Jesus ever teach that the body, your body, is just a physical prison for your soul. And it doesn't matter very much. You're not, you know, we talk about the, the a theology of the body, Upon a careful reading of the Bible and study of Jesus and his ministry, nowhere will you ever find a message that says to ignore the pain, poverty, or suffering of this world and just wait it out, fix our eyes on Jesus because we're going to go to heaven and all of this stuff will burn and go away anyway. You don't find that in the Bible. Instead, you see that God created both the soul and the body and called them both good. He called them all good. Therefore, the redemption that Jesus is going to accomplish will redeem both body and soul, both, spiritual, both the spiritual and the material. There's no demarcation necessarily in the Bible unless it's infected by sin. The word the flesh, infected by sin, sarks in the Greek, is talking about uh, something good that's been polluted, but it's not talking about something that is all bad in and of itself. Your body, all of you, is good. In fact, 
when you read to the end, this is exactly especially what we see in the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ. It's not that he, it's, we don't come together on Easter and celebrate his disembodied soul raising from the dead. That's not what we celebrate. And it's, it's, that might seem like a little nuance, but it's extremely important to the way we look at the world. No, his body and soul raised from the dead, and that's the exact kind of resurrection that he says that we will follow in someday. The Bible doesn't describe heaven as a place filled with disembodied spirits, but a place filled with embodied people where we will be running according to Revelation, walking, eating, hugging, touching, experiencing, having se- experiencing through the senses and so and everything else. So there is every indication that the Bible takes the body and the physical material world, this world, society, people, what's going on on this planet very seriously. In fact, this is what Old Testament, especially uh, Jews in the first century um, and post, the post-exilic time into the first century, Jews were expecting a salvation that was very much material. This wasn't, in fact, this kind of resurrection, by the way, it was not new to Christianity. Throughout the Old Testament, and we've talked about this before, but even back in Genesis, um, death was not described as our bodies dying. Death was described as exile from God's presence. And everything, all the fallout in this world is a result of that kind of death, disease, you know, like COVID and everything else, is a result of that kind of, that kind of um, disassociation between us and our maker that, that rents us spiritually but also flows out into the material world, into society, into everything else that we're seeing. And therefore... Um, and this theme of death being exiled, death being further east from God's presence, east of Eden, further east from God's presence, goes all the way through the Old Testament, through the prophets, and into the New Testament. And there's a lot of, by the way, um, post-Old Testament Judea, uh, Jewish literature that talks about their, their uh, so those that are waiting for the Messiah into the New Testament, that talks about their desire for a resurrection or a Messiah that would bring heaven to earth, that, would renew, that it would be so, such a complete kind of salvation that would renew the, completely renew the created order. That's what they were expecting. It wasn't this disembodied kind of platonic way of thinking of things, of, of everything else is going to burn and we're going to be in heaven as these little you know, um, these little spirits. I'm thinking of the new Disney movie. If you have Disney Plus, there's a, there's a movie called Soul. It's a, uh, it's a DreamWorks, you know, Disney thing. And there are these little glowing blue balls in heaven. That's how, but people's personality. And they're talking, it's cute. It's really funny. Super not biblical in it, or, in, or, or accurate, but it's really fun. It's cute. But it's, that's not the way it is. Um, you know, if... Will you, will you know my name when I see you in heaven? Isn't that Eric Clapton, right? Will, you, will people recognize me? We don't get dumber in heaven. We get smarter. We, know it, we will be able to recognize one another. We'll see each other. We'll know, we'll know all those things. It's going to be wonderful. But, see, there is every indication that the Bible um, respects the body and wants to redeem the physical world, but as significant as those things are, they are not Jesus' priority. This is an issue of priority in the Scripture. From the first miracle that Mark shows us here in the book of Mark, Jesus is saying that there's something beyond the matters of this life that is more important than this life that will greatly affect this life. And if you don't connect to Him that greater reality, then in all the areas, you will cons- all the areas of life, you will, cons- you will continue to suffer and unravel. The more we are out of touch with God, the more things will begin to- here will suffer. So therefore, priority is, priority for Jesus is this relationship with God. And notice that Jesus addresses this paralytic with this really tender, beautiful word. He says, son, your sins are forgiven. In other words, he's saying, 
This is the kind of right relationship with God I'm trying to bring you into, and it's an intimate one. I love what J.I. Packer says. He says in the Old Testament, the name for God was Yahweh. In the New Testament, the name for God is Daddy. Jesus brings, brings more, it's still Yahweh, but he brings more focus to the, to, to the main heart of the message. When Jesus says, son, your sins are forgiven, what he's actually offering this man is a new relationship with God, not like a boss to an employee or like a higher power to us uh, lower powers, but as a father to a son. That's the idea. And this is Jesus' number one priority. So, Let's translate this to our lives. Jesus' number one priority for you is an intimate, close family relationship between you and the Father. Can you call God Daddy? Can you call him a Father? Is that the, does, that, does that describe your relationship with God? And this is one of the main things that separates Christianity from any other religion. There is no other religion on the planet that describes this level of access to God like the word Abba or Daddy and Son. This is um, unprecedented. We, again, this is one of the things we take for granted. You know, we say, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. But you need to understand, when Jesus taught the disciples how to pray, that was revolutionary. When they said, teach us how to pray, and he said, okay, Say this, our Father who is in heaven. To call, they, the disciples have been praying, by the way, probably since they were old enough to think. They've been taught how to pray. But there was something about how Jesus prayed that made them feel like they were missing something. I've prayed, but something's missing. I would be willing to bet it was his intimacy with God. When they watched him pray, it was like watching somebody who was entering into an intimate relationship with God himself, someone that knew him personally, and they, and they dared ask, how do we get there? And Jesus starts by saying, first, start by thinking of God differently. Instead of thinking of him as just your creator, which he is, instead of thinking of him as all-powerful, which he is, instead of thinking of him as all-wise and someone you can't relate to, sure, he is all-wise, but hey, change the way you think of God from that being that I can, I can only come king and judge, all of those things are true, but he's also, he's your dad. He's your daddy. You have access. And that's the most important thing that Jesus wants, that is in, on Jesus' mind. The first thing that we see, this paralytic coming that Mark chooses to show us, I think it's that Mark is trying to show us who Jesus is. I think he's trying to show us that Jesus' priority was to bring us close to, to God and then healing would continue. You are forgiven. You're loved and accepted as a child of God. He's our Father. Now I also, um, and I won't belabor this point, but, but it's just, um, I read this article of this prominent psychologist who is very well respected, and I can't remember her name. But anyway, she was saying in this magazine article, and I couldn't find it, um, she was saying that she could boil down all of her patients' issues over all the years of her long career. Every patient that laid down on her couch, she said, if I could boil down every single issue to one word, it would be forgiveness. Forgiveness. Guilt. Shame trying to weigh out the scales, trying to make it right, or trying to prove that they did nothing wrong. It still has something to do with forgiveness. Trying to, they're trying to justify themselves, trying to make themselves right. Jesus and this psychologist are saying, the issue of life, the issue of life is forgiveness. It is, it is forgiveness. It's most important. For example, if you try to, let's say you've been hurt, most of us have, but I, mean, but I mean like deeply hurt, betrayal. The Bible says over and over again, the way to get rid of that poison, the poison of that hatred in your soul is forgiveness. It's an absolute command. This is how you eject the poison out of your system is forgiving that person, but you can't do it. How many, you don't have to raise your hand, but how, I'll just raise my hand. How many people are so 
enraged when they hear, hear a preacher just say, well, just forgive. As if, it's, as if, you know, go to the store, get a gallon of milk, a dozen eggs, and forgive that person while you're at it. As if, well, it's easy. What do you mean you can't forgive your dad? Just forgive him. You're done. And we think, you don't get it. <laughs> we get so mad by that, that, don't we? Because there is no such thing as easy forgiveness. It does not exist. There is no such thing as forgiveness that won't cost somebody something. Did you know that? It does not exist. On the material level or on the spiritual level, it does not exist. Um, if we break something in this building, someone's going to have to pay for it. And now we could go to Emmanuel and say, hey, we're sorry, we didn't mean to, just forgive us. And that would be kind of insulting because it means that if they were to forgive us, it doesn't mean that, the, that it just disappears, it means that they are going to have to incur the cost of the, of the problem, of the offense, that's how forgiveness works on this, this level too, spiritually. When someone has wronged you, when your father has wronged you, your mother, or what, you know, whatever, that person that's so close to you and they wronged you, it costs you something. And when someone says forgive them, you know what they're saying? They're saying you let them off the hook, you don't hold that against them anymore, and you incur the cost for this yourself. That's why the Bible doesn't say this, but... A lot of scholars point out that the term forgiveness and suffering are almost synonymous in the Bible. If you forgive, you will suffer. That's the fuller story of the doctrine of forgiveness. It's not just, well, just forgive and move on. Mm -mm. It's forgive and bring redemption by cutting off the payback and the revenge and all of those things. Bring redemption by cutting it off, letting them go, and incurring the suffering yourself. That means forgiving when they don't ask for it. It means letting them, it doesn't mean you have to trust them and make them your best buddy, especially if they're not repentant. But you don't hold it against them anymore. You don't wish them ill anymore. It's always, forgiveness is always the most important thing. And that's what matters most. Beyond anything else that's physical, um, Martin Lloyd-Jones was this, a famous minister um, in the 20th century, and he was actually a famous surgeon before he became a minister, a famous doctor. And one day, it dawned on him that he could go around healing people. He was prominent. He was this up-and-coming surgeon. He was just on the rise, brilliant man. And one day, it dawned on him that he can heal people but then they were going to get sick again. He realized my profession, as important as it is, is limited. And because of that realization, he felt called by God and he gave up, um, he gave up being a doctor in the medical field and he became a pastor, a minister, and, and uh, ministered Westminster Chapel in, in, uh, in London. And he became a prolific preacher that always wanted to try. He made this his priority. Now, he was a man of science. He was a medical man. He believed in healing. He believed in those types of things. But he made this his priority, see. The Bible is not downplaying anybody's suffering or the world's suffering. It's just saying there's a greater priority. You can survive COVID and you'll get sick again. I, I hear the, the, the statistics on death these days are... Insane. I think it's like 10 out of 10 people are dying these days. Let's make a, rela a relationship right with God. Okay, that was the first shocking thing. Secondly, I think the guy being healed was shocked at their eagerness of Jesus. And frankly, we should be very shocked about this too. Here's something that we might pass over, but I want you to pay attention. What is missing in this story? What's missing? What's not there that should be there? in the story about Jesus forgiving this man. What'd you say? I'm so sorry, I can't hear you. Ah, uh, sure, gratitude. Yeah, you could say that. What's missing before Jesus says he's forgiven? He doesn't ask for it. The guy didn't come there to confess. 
That should be confusing to us. That should shock what you know about Jesus. Because what we do know about Jesus is that he didn't walk around just going, you there, you're forgiven. And you, forgiven. You back over there, boom, forgiven. He didn't do that. It takes confession of sin and repentance to access the forgiveness that he freely gives to everybody, right? We don't, we're not, uh, the Bible clearly does not teach a universalism that everyone's just forgiven and going to heaven. Instead, people must come humbly, penitently before the cross. The cross tells us, we've said this several times, the cross tells us something about us. It tells us we're so bad and so depraved that it took, the, it took the Son of God himself coming to die on the cross for you. That's how bad you are. There's no other way to save yourself. And at the same exact moment, at the same time, the cross tells you that you're so loved and precious that he did send his Son to die for you. That's the balance we're going for here. This guy comes and he doesn't ask for it. He doesn't confess. He doesn't repent. He doesn't say, gosh, I'm so sorry for the things that I've done. So what are we to make of this? Well, later in verse 8, we're given a clue. In verse 8, we see that Jesus is able to read the thoughts and the hearts of the scribes that are there. Did you notice that? He's able to read what they're, what they're saying or to hear what they're saying. We'll get, we'll get to that in a second, but for now, it's important to conclude that Jesus, therefore, is able to read everyone's heart in that room. Not just the scribes, but everybody, including the man laid before him. And therefore, I think that there must have been some kind of inarticulate desire for mercy, forgiveness, or for grace in this man's heart. There must have been an unexpressed, inarticulate, some kind of yearning, a hidden cry in the heart. Perhaps maybe it was just a faint attitude. I just help. Something like that. And Jesus goes for it. This show, Jesus, in other words, is eager to show mercy. That's his attitude. That's what we learn about Jesus. Jesus is so gracious that he reads the man's heart and even though the, des the desire for forgiveness is just maybe a fragment, maybe it's, it's imperfect, it's, un it's unexpressed, it's inarticulate, but even a, a fragment of imperfect yet genuine desire is enough for Jesus to say, your sins are forgiven. I forgive you. The imperfect whisper of an attitude of spiritual dependence is enough. And Jesus responds to that attitude and grants forgiveness. That's how eager Jesus is to give us love and grace. That's how eager Jesus is to give the world love and grace. He's always pushing grace always pushing mercy. He's looking for any opening he can get. That's the attitude of Jesus. As, again, we're trying to watch him and learn Jesus. And there are boundaries. There are things that we need to understand, like our sin and those types of things. But Jesus gets as close as he possibly can and says, just whisper it. Just, just a fragment. Ah, there it is. Son, your sins are forgiven. He's so eager to love us, so eager to be gracious to us. The Bible says that God, by the way, the Bible says about God that his anger will fade, but he, quote, delights in showing mercy. He delights in it. It thrills his heart to show mercy. He's looking for any opportunity he can get to show mercy. He wants to be merciful. What does that tell us about how Jesus views you? how he looks at us, and therefore how he looks at society, how he looks at the world. If your view of Jesus is him going around judging everybody or looking down at everybody that doesn't see things the way we do, it's probably not the most accurate view of Jesus that we, at least not here, that we can find in the Bible. We don't see a Jesus that walks around with his nose high and waiting for everybody to get it before he 
acts with love and compassion and mercy. Instead, we see a Jesus who's eager, who's looking. I, I've, I've come. And this is the heart of God beating throughout the Old Testament. Again, think of the main narrative of the Bible. In Eden, our relationship with God was broken. And you could say accurately, generally, yet still true, accurately, that the rest of the Bible is God trying to bring mankind back to this relationship, back to Eden. You can see throughout the Old Testament that God is eager to bring it back, to bring them back into place. There is a beautiful continuity between the Old Testament and the New Testament. Those that think that the Old Testament God is different than the New Testament God, we don't see that when you do a careful reading of the Bible. You see a God that's eager, and there's a story and a plan of God bringing mankind back. And here Jesus is the personification of that. He's the embodiment of that. And he comes into this world, and he's just eager, looking for, for, to dispense God's mercy and his grace. that should shock us and it should be a check against our attitude when we run into people that we sometimes I think we we think God is on our side when it comes to the way we think about people and look at people and I think this shows that he's not all the time is he grieved by sin sure absolutely but he's grieved the same way we would be grieved of something that's hurting our children That's that kind of jealous anger. It's hurting you because it's separating you from me. Therefore, I'll do anything to get that out of the way to bring bring you back. And when we, and this goes back to forgiveness, you cannot forgive the world, you can't forgive Seattle, you can't have have a attitude of love for Seattle if you don't understand the attitude of love that God has for you. You, you just can't. You can say forgive all you want and, and think of all and say all the right things, believe all the right things, but unless you're in touch with your own brokenness and how much it took for Jesus to restore you and how eager he was to save and forgive you, you are not going to be eager at all to make a difference for the kingdom of God in a place like Seattle. We have to lean in to our own salvation story over and over and over again and feel it again and feel it again and feel it again. Okay, thirdly, the surprise of the teachers of the law. Okay, look at verse six. And some of the scribes were sitting there and reasoning in their hearts, why does this man speak blasphemies like this? Who can forgive sins but God? Here's where we say, oh, those, these bad scribes and Pharisees, they're these legalistic, actually, they're just good Bible students, to be honest. They're, they've nailed it. They're exactly right. Their understanding, I mean, they're, they're, they're thinking of Isaiah 43. They're thinking of Psalm 34. They're, they're thinking of all these places where it's clear that only God has the authority to forgive sins. These are not, these are, just because they have the term scribe does not mean they're bad guys. They've got it right. They're like, wait a second, you can't say that. What are they, they're recognizing that this is an out, that Jesus is basically, this is an outright claim to, de, to deity. By Jesus presuming that he has authority to forgive sins, he's making a very, very bold statement, and they've got it right. It's a radical claim to deity, and these guys have got it right. They're saying, this guy's claiming to be God, and they're right about that. Look what happens. But immediately, when Jesus perceived in his spirit that they reasoned this way, so they're surprised, they're shocked that he would do this, he said to them, why do you reason about these things in your hearts? Which is easier to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise, take up your bed, and walk? This is great. It's a riddle. I love it. Here's the question. Which is easier to say, you're forgiven, or to say that you're healed. And actually, it's kind of a trick question. Actually, if you think about it, it's a trick question because there are two answers that are both kind of right, but you have to understand both of those answers. On the surface, what are you going to say? You're going to say, okay, well, it's certainly easier just to say to somebody, you're forgiven. 
but it's not easy. You know, I can, I can walk up to somebody and say you're healed, and it, obviously it's not, it's not going to happen if I do that. But it's easy to walk up to somebody and say, hey, you're forgiven, right? That's easy. So in a sense, there's a sense in which that's the right answer because Jesus says, well, to show you that I have the power uh, um, and that I'm not like the rest of you, that I'm different, I'm going to heal this man. So he heals him. Jesus heals him and the man walks out. Here's what Jesus is trying to say. He's trying to say, yes, I am who I said I was. I am who I said he was. And this is Jesus calling a shot, by the way. The Greek word for um, get up, that he tells the man, get up. The Greek word for that in verse 11 and 12, um, it's, it's, it's an unusual Greek word that Mark actually uses in one other place, in chapter 16, when it talks about Jesus getting up on Easter, rising from the dead. Mark is signaling something here. This is what we would call a foreshadow, and if we saw this in a movie, it's a hint of the ending. Jesus, or, or Jesus is signaling something here. I think that's probably the best way, because Jesus said it. He said, get up. He used a very specific term that linked what was going to happen in his resurrection in other words, Jesus has the authority to heal the effects of sin, disease, um, physical ailments, those types of things. He has the authority to heal the effects of, the, of sin because on the cross, he's going, to, he's going to forgive sin. He's going to deal with the root of it all. He's going to deal with sin itself. The signal is the only reason why we can get up now, the only reason Jesus can forgive and, and heal him is because someday Jesus is going to lay down his life and rise for our justification. And it's as good as done. In other words, I'm going to do something, Jesus is saying. There are some scholars, by the way, that, think that, don't, that still don't think that Jesus knew what his mission was until he was actually on the cross. <laughs> I, I think that's patently wrong because of things like this i think things like this and the bat and his baptism he was calling his shot he was saying this is what i'm going to do and it's going to solve the it's going to button up redemptive history to the point where it's going to it'll retro back it can retro backwards and give me authority now in other words i have taken on the mission to redeem mankind and because i said yes to it it's as good as done and i have access to the power of it now Really powerful. See, for Jesus, for God, in one sense, he can heal people. But sin's a different story, isn't it? Sin's a different, to deal with what's behind the brokenness in this world. The two are linked. Sin's a different story. For that, it took his death. For that, it took him dying a humiliating death on the cross. It took rejection from God for that. The only way, way any healing is possible is because of um, Jesus on the cross. The two things are linked. They're this, the, the, you can't have one without the other. Sin has affected this world and broken us. Therefore, there, can, there cannot be any healing unless sin is taken care of. That's what he's going to do on the cross. And because it's as good as done, he says it, it's done, he has access to that power. And every miracle Jesus does through the Gospels is because of the cross. You need to understand. We think, when we read about Jesus, we think, well, he's God. Of course. You know, if I was God, I'd walk on water too. Of course. If I was God, I'd feed 5,000 people, sure. But you need to understand, because of sin, it has separated his relationship with mankind. That's got to be breached. That's what he's there to do. Therefore, in order to have the authority, because this passage is about authority, in order to have the authority to forgive sins and to heal people, he's got to take care of that sin. And he's so on that track. He's got a, you know, the Bible says that his face is set like flint toward Jerusalem. In other words, he's going to die on the cross for the sins of man. He's going to see it done, no matter what. Literally come hell. He's going to go through hell on the cross. He's going to get it done. And because of that, he can access redemptive power, resurrection power now. And in the same way, for, for us, after the fact, after the resurrection, in the same way, our, we're on the same path. Do you understand 
that your resurrection is, if you're a believer in Jesus, is as good as done. And therefore, there are some things that we have access to. There's power, redemptive power that we have access to now. Even though it ha- we haven't experienced the final resurrection yet, we get a imperfect yet genuine taste of that power right now in our lives right now. It is possible for us to conquer some things. It is possible for us to reach out and make a difference for the kingdom of God in our neighborhood, in our families, in our workplaces, and in people that we meet. It is possible for us to do those things with not just our own ingenuity, but with power because we have a resurrection coming that's retroed back into right now. And to the degree that we realize that and tap into that and depend on that and go into it, to that degree, things begin to be affected here in our lives. Not fully. The kingdom of God is near. It's, like I said uh, last week, it's inaugurated. It hasn't fully happened yet. The battle has not, the decisive victory has happened, but the battle has not been quite won yet. But it's going to be. But we have a lot of power to draw on in the midst of that. Jesus is saying, if I have the authority to heal this man, then you'll have to take it on faith that I have the authority to forgive sins also. The two, this points to the other. The fact that I have authority to heal this man points that I I have the authority to forgive sins. He says in verse 10, but that you may know that the Son of God has power on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, I say to you, arise, take up your bed, and go to your house. Immediately he arose, took up the bed, he went out in the presence of them all, so they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, we've never seen anything, anything like this. Imagine all the tension here. The scribes are tense because Jesus just challenged them and confronted them and basically verified his claim of divinity. The paralyzed man, he's tense because he's wondering if he's going to walk in that moment. And then he does. And he's also been forgiven. The crowd is tense because they're just watching this whole thing. Everyone's surprised and shocked about this Jesus. Are there some things that we've learned today about him that surprise us? He's eager. That's, I think, the most beautiful surprise. He's eager. I think he's much more eager than we are to show mercy. And the only way we're going to become eager is to realize how eager he is to give it to us. How bad we are, how sinful we are, and how eager he is to love us and restore us. Amen. Amen.